You're listening to WTF 2050. What's Tasmania's future? Thirty years goes like that. I wonder. We've actually shown we can do these sorts of things without risk. There is nothing. Hello. Hello. I'm Leanne Mitchell, and I'm Anna Bateman, and you're listening to What's Tasmania's Future 2050. And on this, our last episode of season one of WTF, Anna has a chat to Rosie Martin, a speech pathologist, criminologist, and founder of Chatter Matters, a charity that focuses on communication and literacy. A few years ago, Rosie took herself out to Risdon Prison as a volunteer and started getting some great results. She was awarded Tasmanian of the Year in 2017 for her work helping prisoners crack the code of reading. Our chat with Rosie is in two parts. Here's part one. Hi, I'm Rosie Martin. I'm a speech pathologist and criminologist, and right at the moment, I'm enjoying this interview in my little clinic in Elizabeth Street in Hobart. I've had a lovely childhood growing up on a farm in South Australia, just on the outskirts of the Barossa Valley. So it was one of those wondrous. Childhoods in which I was able to be set free in the morning and roam across the property all day, and come home for a feed at lunchtime, and out into the property again, my own horses and animals, and you know all the joy of life. It was beautiful. I learned to love the beauty and the wonder of nature. I think it taught me to love, actually. Do you remember ever having problems reading or learning to read? For myself, no, I didn't have any problems learning to read, and in fact, I can remember this deep joy. Of understanding what was going on when I was decoding what I think then was nip and fluff, and just feeling this empowerment of knowing that I knew what those words were and I knew how to figure them out. I remember that really, really distinctly. Was there a point at which you went, "This is going to be my driver"? Is the thing well, that... I have an older brother who has hearing impairment, and he is profoundly deaf. Which actually wasn't diagnosed until he was about four or four and a half, I think, which is quite late, and it was still quite late back then. But a really bright spark of a kid who was able to, you know, adapt and and visually very alert to the world. So he learned from watching the world, and so the hearing impairment just wasn't noticed until he was a little bit older. But then he was supported well with hearing aids, and、um, he's a wonderful man. He's had a wonderful life. But I remember as a Child, the primary school that I went to only had about fifty students in the whole school, and so I can remember being in the same class as my older brother, the same classroom because the several grades were together under one teacher, and I remember him being stood up by a teacher, and and the teacher actually said to him, you know, asked him to answer a particular question which he couldn't answer, and I remember seeing his embarrassment at that, and、um, and then the teacher said to him, you know, why don't you answer? Answer the question. Are you deaf or something? And I can just remember being just mortified, like I was just desperately hurt for my brother. But it was actually my mum that put speech pathology forward to me and said, "What about this, Rosie? Do you think this is something that would interest you?" And when I look back and tie all of those pieces together, I can see it was obvious that I was informed in that way. Although I probably wouldn't have articulated it that way at the time. But I've been very satisfied with my. Career. I've just found it at every point、um, enjoyable and stimulating. The richness of working closely with people to, you know, help them together to problem solve the challenges around communication has just been amazing. And that people put trust in me has been an incredible privilege that I never 
stop thinking of as a privilege actually that people don't know how to solve this particular problem with their child with autism or with this particular pronunciation problem or that the child is having difficulty making friends at school or that they can't get a simple message across or that they're not understanding language whatever the situation might be it's a privilege that people will trust that you know together we can work something out when we met as individuals, it really changes the kind of respect and the, uh, the opportunities to know each other well inside of a relationship. And I think that that is a really major part of the work that I've been able to do across the years. And it is a profession that's all about communication. So obviously being able to communicate well with our clients and be connected to them in a socially warm way is also part of the, part of the process. So Tasmania, as we understand it, has the highest level of functional illiteracy in the country, but it's not that much worse than the rest of the country. So we're only talking about a couple of percentage points difference across the nation. So it's pretty bad across the whole of Australia. It's not just a Tasmanian problem. But we know that around about 25 to 30% of children who are sitting in our classrooms are going to have some kinds of challenges picking up learning to read. And we also know that if children have come from trauma environments where they've experienced a lot of trauma, violence around the home, if it's long and prolonged and sustained, that is really very damaging to the developing brain. Um, but if it's even just short bursts of violence, um, you know, can also be damaging. I mean, just to define not just violence, but it can be abuse. I mean, how do you classify violence? Um, violation, I guess, is how I classify violence. So, you know, that might be abuse of various types. It can also be neglect and it can be verbal violence that might not be directly drawing the child into that verbal violence, but verbal violence that's happening between adults in the home. So those things actually can, can suppress and change the way that little brains are responding to the world in a way that actually quite significantly disadvantages their opportunities for being able to learn going forward. And imagine you're Minister of Education for a moment mm -hmm. and you could say if you had one thing that you would change, what would it be? Mm. I think improving and supporting people to, to be their best selves in the quality of their relationships. I think it's really, really important to be working, if I was the Minister of Education, um, to be working upstream and to be putting funds and money into quality early intervention that supports people in the positive quality of their relationships with their children and by that of their relationships broadly. So as much support for the parent <coughs> yeah. as for the child? Absolutely. So support for the families as well as for as well as for the children. There's a principle which is this that we we cannot give what we've never been given. And so if families, uh, you know, parents have been raised in situations where their own language has not become rich and elaborated because of the diminishment of language in their own childhoods and in their own educational experiences, then we know that they may not be in the position to be able to give the richest, fullest language input to their children because they don't have those vocabularies themselves. 
I don't say that in any wise by way of diminishment of those parents. They thinking about the Minister for Education, then what we want to be able to do is to support the positive relationship there and support both the child through relationships then at school and relationships in the early intervention programs and relationships in preschool play groups um, to be hooked in parent and child with others who have those language experiences for the parent and child relationship to be deeply valued and for the parent of course to be deeply valued as a fellow human being and for everybody to have opportunity to experience those relationships some with more language ability, if you like, others with less, but to experience those relationships as aspirational where everybody is learning something. And, you know, if we can create environments with that kind of respect, and we know that there are places where that is really happening. So, for instance, in the Launch into Learning programs in schools, we know that there are some really lovely stories that come out of that where the Launch into Learning teachers engage with parents in a way that develops the parents' confidence so that they're eager to come into the sessions and the parents are able to articulate that they're learning a lot from the sessions. The children are being uh, held about by the parent who's there and by teachers that are there and that's a lovely environment for them to be in. But the Launch into Learning teachers are also able to tell us how much they're learning about the challenges that the families face and therefore about how to modify the services that they offer and the way that they go about interacting in order to really respectfully meet that person. But, um, you know, they, they talk in stories of, uh, you know, how much it changes them as human beings to realise how, how another might struggle, but still have this incredible courage to rise above that struggle or keep attempting to rise above that struggle. And, and so everybody becomes inspired. And what is inspirational in that? is the quality of the relationship. So there was a bit of professional frustration over a long time um, working in a private speech pathology clinic where a lot of the work that we were doing here in the clinic was supporting children and adolescents with severe literacy acquisition difficulties, so children and adolescents who hadn't been able to learn to read at school, and we were doing some extra support around that and working with their parents to support them. And what we found is that or what I have found is that, you know, often we would assess children who came from environments where perhaps there wasn't quite so much money to pay for private services, but parents were really deeply moved by the fact that their little person couldn't read and, and how distressing that was and how they wanted to be able to do whatever they could to repair that. And so they would come and they would have an assessment. They couldn't then afford the ongoing intensity of therapy because to make these kinds of changes, we do need to work intensively, um, you know, once a week with ongoing practice at home and so on. And so being able to meet, you know, that kind of demand or necessity when people didn't have enough funds to be able to pay for private therapy which yeah. is itself expensive it must That's, have been very heartbreaking oh to, totally mm. totally and so there were times when we would assess families and we would be able to say well these are the kinds of things we need to do this would be the type of plan then they weren't able to continue in that plan but then we saw the other problem which is where we might engage with families who did have capacity to pay and who would come and have the assessment and they would be equally distressed about their children not being able to learn to read or having difficulty in this journey. And what we would see there very often is that they would engage with therapy, but busyness would get in the way. And so it might be that they would come into therapy on a weekly basis, but when they came in, they would say, oh gosh, I'm so sorry, we haven't been able to get any of the practice done this week. And, you know, this happened and that happened. And, you know, something went wrong with somebody's soccer practice or whatever. And look, 
I have no judgment around those things because I have a busy life. My kids had a busy life. But what I would see is that actually for the little person that we were attempting to do this reading intervention for was that they were not getting the intensity that was required in order to make a difference for them. All the reasons might be valid, but it wasn't landing to them in the way that it needed to in order to make a difference. And so I was looking for a model that might create a difference for the people that I saw and so that's why I started the charity you know I was thinking oh you know maybe we'd be able to attract some philanthropic funding and um, you know people who are passionate about this might uh, be willing to you know give donations to a charitable vehicle in the way that they obviously wouldn't give donations to a for-profit private practice but to set up a vehicle which showed with complete honesty that actually we're really passionate about wanting to make a difference in this area and to lift and elevate this skill set that uh, that I know that speech pathologists have because we're able to assess with a different set of tools and a different understanding of the way that their processing system is set up. It wasn't so much a three o'clock in the morning moment, but the decision to go into the prison. I think I'm a journalist, so I had been writing about my desire to be able to make a difference and my sense of frustration about not knowing what to do and how to go about that and having started the charity, but then not really knowing how to position it and, and so on. And I realised, I went back through my writings, and I realised I've been writing about the illiteracy of people who fall into uh, contact with the justice system who end up incarcerated. I remember when I was doing the dyslexia doc, and it was something like 75% of prisoners mm, presented mm. with some form of dyslexia or reading mm. difficulties. Mm. Is that still the same? Yeah, it? yeah, it's those kind of figures. So different studies show different things. We know that about 50% of people or youth in contact with the youth justice system here in Australia have severe and often undiagnosed language impairment. The figures are even reported in some places as high as 90% of um, people who are in contact with the justice system have you know, measurable communication impairments. They might not fall at that level of severe, but that nevertheless are measurable. Communication is a great enabler. Our ability to communicate is an enabler. And we've been saying it this way, that if people can't speak out, they'll act out. And for some, that acting out tips over into crime. Because when we can't express our thoughts easily, for any of us, even when we've got really good language skills, if I'm struggling to express something, it might be that my frustration is increasing or I feel myself to be a bit stupid in that moment, not being able to express. And what rises? But frustration. And I think that probably all of us can relate to those moments where we've behaved badly in response to not being able to express ourselves clearly or not feeling that we've been heard. You're listening to WTF 2050. What's Tasmania's future? What's Tasmania's future? What's Tasmania's future? What a fantastic woman. And as somebody who's always been able to communicate, I've never thought about communication skills being a great enabler, but of course they are. Yeah, if it doesn't come naturally to you, you don't think about it, do you? Mm For our second chat, Rosie got down to her big hairy goal. And can I say, it's the biggest, hairiest one we've (laughs) had yet. Here it is. And I wanted to start by saying congratulations because some funding was Mm. announced Mm. and I wondered if Mm. you could talk to me about what that is and what that that program is that you're running at Riston. Yeah, so I started a charity in 2013 and that's been the vehicle for doing the work that we've been doing both in the prison and in community. 
and it's called Chattamatis, Tasmania, and we had extreme comfort in the lead-in to the last election in that the Liberal Party had promised us and made an electorate commitment to $150,000 for us to be able to continue the program that we were running, uh, which supports parent-child attachment. And we were running that thinly within the prison in that we were doing occasional cycles of the program as we had the funding to do it. But with that election commitment and that money across 12 months, we'll be able to run the program thickly, which means we'll be able to do back-to-back cycles in multiple of the security levels within the prison. So this is extraordinary. With this particular program, which is a highly respected uh, parent-child attachment program, hasn't been run at this level of um, a focus and intensity within a prison before. So it's really, really exciting. But the particular comfort came from the fact that the Labor Party had also made a commitment to us and the Greens had also made a commitment to us. So so you weren't sitting there with your, you know, we finger in your mouth going, oh, my God, oh, my God. We were not off at all. We were just very, um, mm. you know, very delighted to understand that uh, come what may, we would have the opportunity to do what, from a, the point of view of mm. humanity and the support of humanity and the support of uh, human dignity, uh, you know, is the, the right thing to do. The particular tool within the program we've been running is the Circle of Security Parent DVD program. So it's a uh, program that's been set up by a group of American um, psychologists and family therapists who have been working together and researching together for more than 50 years. And so they have, in an implementation science way, have gradually refined this product to something that they know is really very effective. And there's lots of research that shows that it's a really very effective tool to use to support families and parents to understand something new about parent-child attachment in such a way that it changes their behaviour to support the security of attachment with their own children, but also to help them understand something more about themselves and the quality of attachment that they may have had with their own parents, not in a blaming way, but in a way of understanding simply what was and what is some some examples of the kinds of things that people have said to us, parents have said to us, yet mostly young parents, but some some of them are parents of older children and um, and indeed parents of young adults. Um, but the kinds of things they have said, I remember one young mum who said, I didn't realise till we did this that babies can communicate. And another young mum who said, tell the truth, I wasn't a parent's arsehole all these years. I spent all my time on my phone. And another young mum who said, I think I'm mean. So she suddenly realised, I think I'm mean in the way that I respond to my children. And she very vulnerably said that into the group. That's enormous. That's a transformational moment. She saw herself as something she didn't know herself to be. And in seeing that, realised that is not how I want to be. You know, that realisation is the moment where she has choice to actually choose to be something different. And a dad who said, I'm looking forward to getting out of prison this time. He said, other times I've looked forward to getting out of prison because I want to go on a bender or, you know, I want to go and get smashed or, you know, I want to see my woman. Um, But this time I'm looking forward to getting out of prison because I just want to be a dad. I want to be a better dad. 
you know, these are amazing moments and the science of desistance from crime, what causes people to stop doing crime, to desist, to no longer do crime, shows that if we can support those moments in a person's life when they are uh, seeing themselves in terms of their self-identity, beginning to see themselves differently, if those moments can be supported, we think that we can bring a rehabilitative factor that actually supports you know, going on from a life of crime and into a life where there's not recidivating. So, I would like to get to your 2050 goal. My 2050 goal would be to see a, a reduction in prisons in Tasmania. and We've only the, got one. We've only got one. Wouldn't it be great to see none? <laughs> that may be unrealistic because we know that there are a very small percentage of people who have committed crime who, for whatever reason, in their backgrounds or in their... Uh, biologies um, actually may be dangerous to society and dangerous to themselves in such a way that you know there is a school of thought that there will always be a need for some level of incapacitation of people who are dangerous in order to be protecting of society. However, the way that prisons are currently structured, um, there are many people who are in prison who are in prison because of a socially structured inequity that they haven't had the opportunities in their early lives to be able to gain the benefits that society has to offer through no fault of their own. It happens that they were born into such and such a postcode, into such and such a family context in which there was violence and trauma present, and through no fault of their own, but rather these chances, if you like, they have missed out on opportunities that they would otherwise have been able to rise to and to be able to grasp in order to become pro-social, contributing, vibrant citizens and contributors to our society. And so what we would like to see is the creation of a greater equity of opportunity for all people and that that actually is crime prevention with dignity and without stigma and it is crime prevention that enables all people to be able to rise to their fullest and it doesn't even look like crime prevention. It actually just looks like pouring in opportunities for the creation of a flourishing society. That is crime prevention that enables the safest society. But there's a lot of research and there are many very, very fine thinkers and academics and researchers who are able to demonstrate really very clearly that prisons have not created safety for society. Rather, they have diminished safety for society. If we consider that the well-being of society is actually generated by the well-being of all of its members, then when some of its members are placed into environments of extremely, you know, of harsh circumstances and that themselves have a level of violence about them, then actually all of society is not able to flourish when that segment of society is not flourishing. And we also know that when people are coming back into society, having experienced those hardships, then actually that is the life skill that they're bringing with them when they come back into society. So I've heard it expressed this way and I like this. If we treat people like brutes, they will brutalise. 
there's another expression which I like, which is this, that we have to live tomorrow those we punish today. The concept of the abolition of prisons to me is extremely exciting. I actually find myself quite impassioned by that concept and yet I also understand that the word abolition is such a, uh, a striking word that it can perhaps cause people to repel from it in a way of not understanding its depth. You know, an expression that is more palatable and easier to understand is the idea of reduction of prisons. That if we could do better by, um, through our early intervention and through supporting everybody to have the opportunity to be the best person they can be um, before they commit crime and after they commit crime, regardless, then we've got a much greater chance of creating everybody you know, in a situation where they're desiring to be pro-social, to be aware of the needs of others and to move on in a pro-social life. By doing that, we would reduce crime and reduce the need for prisons, you know, as a result of that. So the term abolition, whilst I find it exciting, other people might go, oh, well, you know, what, what does that mean? Does that mean we're just going to close all the prisons and all these dangerous people are going to come out into society? Uh, the idea of the abolition, or even the word, its root meaning, abolicere from the Latin actually means to gradually die out or to gradually decay. And so the concept of the abolition of prisons is to be working in such a way with the problem of crime in society that we gradually cause to die out the need for prisons. So reduction of prisons is a, probably a simpler way to put it. And when I think about the idea of being tough on crime, the challenge to me in that particular phrase is that unless we actually become a little analytical about what is inside of that phrase in terms of the meaning that's in there in the words, it actually tends to allow or to permit the notion that being tough on crime means being tough on people who have done the crime. So it permits that understanding to arise through the use of that phrase. And yet if we take the phrase tough on crime, it actually means to be tough on crime. That means actually we want to do away with crime. We're going to be tough on the crime. We're going to get rid of crime, minimise crime, reduce crime, be tough in such a way that crime itself will be reduced. So that literally means in that phraseology to be tough on the causes, causes. of crime mm. and tough on what causes crime to happen. If we can be tough on those things, golly gosh, that's a good phrase. But using or recognising the meaning that's in that part of the phrase, we actually want to take away that other possibility of interpretation, which is to be tough on the people. Being tough on the people who do crime brings about often unreflected notions of harsh punishment and that is in direct contradiction with the understandings that we have about human rights and human dignity. So holding human rights and human dignity high and understanding also that society does exact a price for the transgression of its um, social rules, then there will be some consequence and it may be that that consequence is incapacitation for a certain period of time but in that time it's the deprivation of liberty that is the punishment and it is not a punishment that then goes on to contravene the human rights and human dignity um, it doesn't do 
society good and it certainly doesn't do the person good. It actually causes, for the most part, people to become angrier and to come out with a, a sense of wanting to get back at a society that they feel has harmed them. That's actually more dangerous for society. I think it's an extraordinary goal. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, one, one that I think is it's right that it's in Tasmania. Oh, I think it's right that it's in Tasmania too. The first time I went to the prison, which is Risdom Prison, because that's the one prison we have here in Tasmania, I was so struck. I was deeply struck that, I'm going to say this bluntly, and then I'll qualify it. Um, but I was deeply struck that nothing had changed in 200 years. And my qualification to that is, of course, you know, we're not whipping people anymore. And, you know, there's not the hard labour kind of gangs that were happening in the Port Arthur years. But what I was struck by in saying that there's nothing had changed in 200 years is that we're still locking up our poor. You know, it was England's poor that were piled onto those rotting boats and sailed to Port Arthur and locked up at Port Arthur. And when I first went to Reston, what I saw mostly, not entirely, of course, but in the larger proportion, was society's poor. It's about socially structured inequity. That is the thing that needs to change. If we can change that, we can reduce prisons. And that ought to be our very, very desirous goal and I think about it, I guess I personalise it for myself. When I think of, I have two sons and they've grown into fabulous men and they're making great decisions about their own lives and moving forward in ways they're, they're following their dreams and it makes me very happy. But I also think if those two same biological people were born into a different situation or you know, say they'd been swapped at birth in the hospital, doesn't happen often, but it has been known to happen, Potentially, they'd have had completely different lives that could have wound them up in that situation. What's the difference? Related to the opportunities that might have been provided to them. And so when I personalise it like that and think about the dignity of every human being, I would love to see and to be part of a society that more and more is stepping towards creating socially structured equity, where every person is given all the opportunities that are available within our society to be able to become the best that they can be and to really maximise their potential. But here in Tasmania, yes, there is that very symbolic piece about prisons. And when white people first came to Australia, you know, we know that there were the First Nations people that were here before white man arrived. And white man opened Tasmania as a prison. And wouldn't it be great if we could close Tasmania as a prison and have complete reconciliation with our First Nations people. That is a goal worth aiming for. Rosie Martin, thank you so much. Wow, what a Tasmanian. What a woman, what a goal. That what is, a goal. That is I a know. big, hairy one. No prisons by 2050. And when you first hear it, you think it's sort of shocking and mad. Oh, you do, because we almost take it as inevitable that we're going to have, as the population grows, we're going to have more of the population in jail. But that's really at the heart of what this whole series is about. It's recognising that the future is something that we create and that this goal really makes us stop and think... You know, what path are we on? And what better place to try and do something like this than in Tasmania? 
Absolutely. And thank you so much, Rosalie Martin and all our WTFers for the time they put aside to share their Big Hairy Goals. And if you've got Big Hairy Goals, if you would like to contribute to our show, please contact us. Um, We want to hear more. And thank you so much for listening. WTF 2050 is hosted by me, Anna Bateman. And me, Leanna Minshew. Thank you all for listening and sharing and commenting on our first series. And the good news is that we will be back shortly with more big thinkers and big stories from this perfectly formed island off the bottom of Australia. What's Tasmania's Future 2050 is supported by the Australia Institute and all of our excellent music and post-production is by Fletcher Babb. Extra recording, Michael Shelley at the Green Room in Hobart. Please subscribe and rate us on iTunes and follow the conversation on Facebook, Twitter and at our website, wtf2050.org.au.